You may have heard me mention before that I've only been to one Olympic Games in my entire life, and uh, I was so little, I don't really remember a lot. I was three years old when the 1968 Olympic Games took place in Mexico City. There's something that happened uh, during uh, that Olympiad that uh, has gone down in history, and it has to do with the marathon that was run that year. Uh, there were 75 people who entered the marathon race, and uh, the first one, the first place runner, I think, was from Ethiopia, came in at a little bit over two hours, and, and uh, many came in, a total of 56 people came into that Aztec Stadium after having completed the marathon. And, and, and as time went on and no other runners would come in, uh, the stadium people began to leave. One hour after the first place runner had come through the finish line, most people were gone. There were just a few people left in the stands. And, and there came a man limping. It was the runner from Tanzania. He uh, had not trained in the kind of high altitude situation that existed in Mexico City. And so he'd been cramping early in the race and about halfway through the marathon, uh, other runners that were jockeying for position uh, bumped him and he fell and he dislocated his knee. But he got up and he kept running. And he came into the stadium way after many people had crossed the finish line, hurting and limping and the few people that were left there got up from the stands and cheered him on as he crossed the finish line. And the press went to him right after that and they asked him why he decided to continue running even though he was the last one, even though everyone else had already come uh, through, why would he continue running with a hurt and dislocated knee? And this was his answer. He said, my country sent me all the way across the ocean here, not so that I could start the race. My country sent me across the ocean so that I could finish the race. And finish he did. And today, you and I are reminded that God hasn't brought us this far so that we could quit. God hasn't allowed us to arrive at this place in the race of the Christian life so that we could give up. There are those who have run before you and me, those who have already crossed the finish line. There are those who are behind us. There are some who have quit. There are some who are standing in the sidelines, but what really matters is not who runs before you, who runs after you, or who runs beside you, but that you cross the finish line, that you and I get to the place where we can cross the finish line. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is compelling his audience to do, to run with perseverance, to run with endurance, the reminder that the Christian life is not a sprint, it's an endurance race, and that there are those who have crossed the finish line before us. And so we get to chapter 12 of Hebrews. We're in a series called Jesus is Better, where we've been going chapter by chapter in the book of Hebrews. And today we come to chapter 12. Go with me, and as I read verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
you might remember that in chapter 11, the writer has given us a list of people that were inducted into the hall of faith. Those who were faithful in the centuries before, those who came before the Hebrew Christians like Noah and Abraham and Moses, people who were exemplars of the faith. They form a long line of faith ancestry, of of a legacy that we receive as people of faith. And now we get to this picture that the writer gives us of a great Olympic stadium where there is a cloud of witnesses, where there is a crowd of people who have run faithfully the race of faith and who are in the stands, not just as spectators, but as those who have finished well. And they're looking at us and they're cheering us on. They're saying, keep running, stay in the race. Don't look behind you, don't look beside you, don't look down, don't look around, but look ahead. Look at the finish line. Set your eyes on finishing and getting across the finish line because you have no idea what awaits us on the other side of the finish line. It's a better kingdom. And that's the title of today's sermon. A better kingdom that lies beyond this race. And so allow me to go to the very end of the chapter and then we'll come back to some portions of chapter 12. But I want you to see this book ends of the chapter Verse 28 uh, reads like this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Christ came to establish a better kingdom, a kingdom that is unshakable, a kingdom that is permanent, a kingdom that is above all kingdoms, and he is inviting us to be a part of that. In fact, he's inviting us to reign with him, to enjoy all of the privileges of that kingdom that cannot be shaken. There, are, there, there is a word here in chapter 12 that I do not want you to miss. It is the first word of chapter 12, verse 1. It's therefore... And then at the very end of the chapter, in verse 28, it says, therefore. Now, here's why this word matters. Because for 11 chapters, the writer of Hebrews has been telling us how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better uh, sacrifice. Jesus is a better tabernacle. Jesus offers us better promises. Jesus offers us a, new, a better covenant. All of these things. And he says, so What? So what if Jesus is better? What are the implications? What do we do? How do we respond? And that's where he says, therefore. So there's a shift in the letter. There's all of these things, all of these doctrinal foundations about who Jesus is, this Christology, if you will. Now, the ethical implications, the way that we live, the way that we respond, come here. And so I'll share with you three of them that I think come out of this uh, chapter 12. The first one is, the suffering of the kingdom. When you're in a race, it matters what you set your eyes, doesn't it? If, if you don't look in the right direction, you, you will lose precious time. In fact, if you don't look in the right direction, you could incur an injury. So it's important that you look in the right 
place. And so that's what verse 2 is about in chapter 12. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He has given us excellent exemplars in chapter 11. He said, look at Noah. Look, look at Moses. Look at Abraham. What, what a great example of faith they are. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. They finished. They crossed the finish line. But the most excellent exemplar of all is Jesus. He ran the race faithfully. He ran the race with endurance. He ran the race with dedication. And he's crossed the finish line. And he's been crowned champion. He sits on the throne as one who has conquered. And as we look at him, as we look at the finish line, we are encouraged, we are inspired. He not just shows us where the finish line is, but, but he shows us the way to the finish line. When we look at Jesus and this picture that Hebrews gives us, we see him on the throne, we see him as king, we see him as the one who rules over this new kingdom, this kingdom that is unshakable, this kingdom that is above all kingdoms. But as we see him as a triumphant king, we also see a cross. Between the incarnation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ, there is a cross. There is suffering. There is death. There is torture. And Christ endured this incredible suffering, this, this pain of execution by a Roman cross because he set his eyes on the kingdom that was coming because he set his eyes on what he was preparing for you and me. He became a suffering servant for a short season so that he could be conquering king for eternity. And we will share in that kingdom. That's good news. We will share in the kingdom with him. But if we share in the glory, we will also share in the suffering. Now suffering, that's not a popular thing today. We'd rather talk about comfort We'd rather talk about our rights. Today's Christians want to be respected. We want to be noticed. We want to wield our power. There are those today who've gone so far as to speculate what Jesus could have done differently so that he wouldn't have to have been crucified by a Roman pagan government. I think we would do well to remember that it wasn't really the Romans' idea to crucify Jesus. It was the religious people. It was the religious people who incited the crowds. It was, it was the religious establishment that, that encouraged Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate just gave in to the political pressure of the religious people. But what's most important to remember is that Jesus was not a victim of the Roman government and he was not a victim of the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he didn't have options. He could have called a legion of angels to rescue him. He could have called down judgment on Pontius Pilate and on the high priest and on everyone that was there that day, but he didn't do it, not because he couldn't do it. He didn't do it because his suffering and his death were necessary. Without his suffering, without his death, there would be no hope. There would be no forgiveness. 
There would be no salvation. There would be no victory. Jesus chose to suffer and die because it was necessary for our sake. Thank God for that. Suffering is necessary for an Olympic athlete as he experiences the discipline that he takes to get to victory. Suffering is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for discipleship. The late missiologist, missionary and missiologist, Leslie Newbigin, said, Jesus was indeed crucified by the established powers. Does it not follow that to go with Jesus on the way to the cross must mean to be on the side of those who suffer from the power of the established order and not of those who wield these powers? And I think that's, that's right on point. And yet, I, I want to say today that suffering is not for the sake of suffering, that suffering in itself is not a virtue. It's not that as Christians we seek suffering or we want to suffer. We're not masochists. It's just that we recognize that when you're in Christ, suffering has a purpose. That, that, that whatever you're going through, it's not by accident that you trust God. We, we sang about that here in, a, a moment ago. Let's go to chapter 12, verse 7, where we hear the, the following admonition. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what, what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father's spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as they fought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Endure hardship as discipline. It's a reminder that whatever suffering we go through as Christians is not outside of God's control. It, it, is, it is his purpose to shape us. Discipline is, is not necessarily punishment. Discipline is, is the direction, it is the focus of our goal. If you see an athlete preparing for a race, they have to exercise discipline. Their diet and their sleeping schedule and their exercise. They have to deprive themselves of certain things because of the goal, because of what they are pursuing. And that is the kind of discipline that we're talking about here. It is training for righteousness. The suffering for the kingdom means that we are willing to endure discipline. That when we're suffering, we don't think that God has forgotten us. That when you're going through a trial, you're going through a hard time, it's not that God has turned his face away from you. And on the contrary, he is your father. And you are his legitimate children. And fathers allow their legitimate children to be directed, to be disciplined, to be, to be led in the right direction. And then secondly, we see here the sanctification for the kingdom. The concepts of 
of holiness and discipline are closely related. Verse 10 and 11 tell us here. The purpose of discipline is to make us holy, is to make us spiritually fit for the better kingdom. That's what God is doing. You've heard it say that God is far more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. God is far more interested in making you holy than he is in making you happy. And so in this image of the runners as they run the race, holiness is uh, like stripping away everything that keeps us from being successful in the race. Everything that makes us trip, everything that weighs us down. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And so we must ask ourselves as, as we run this race, what is weighing me down? What, what extra clothing, what baggage, what luggage am I hauling around with me that is slowing me down in the race of the Christian life that I need to throw off? When we understand that the purpose of our discipline is to sanctify us, to prepare us for the kingdom, then we should be willing to say, I don't need that. Yes, I can, but I don't have to. Yes, I'm free to do it, but I choose not to do it because I have a goal in mind. The writer of Hebrews has told his audience that they don't have to keep the law anymore. They don't have to go back to the Mosaic law. The, the, the new covenant of grace has replaced the old covenant of the law. But here's the thing. Grace is not an excuse to keep sinning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor in the early 20th century, and uh, he began to notice that the German Protestant church was siding with the Nazis in their extreme nationalism and racism and anti-Semitism, and began to protest against that because he didn't think it was biblical. And, uh, and when the pressure was on as he was part of an underground church, the confessing church, uh, he thought that he could flee from the risk of persecution to the United States. So he came to New York for two weeks and as he was in New York, he reasoned with himself. He said, how can I lead the German church back home when I'm not willing to suffer with them? So he decided that he would go, go back to Germany and, and continue to teach and preach from there. He wrote and, and eventually he was arrested in 1943. Uh, it was, evidence was found that he had been part of a conspiracy on an attempt against Hitler's life, and he was executed by hanging. He was willing to suffer for the truth, but before he died, he, he wrote a book that in English is titled The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he talks about what he identified as cheap grace. He felt that the church in Germany was often preaching cheap grace. And this is what he writes. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without our Lord Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If I may be so bold as to add to that, I would say cheap grace 
is grace without holiness. It's the kind of grace that we, we want to receive forgiveness for all our sins, but we're not willing for God to make us holy. The essence of the law of Moses was exactly that. The law of Moses was given so that the people would know that God is holy, that he is like no other God, and that those that will relate to him need to be holy as well. That was the purpose of the law. Now, the difference between the law and grace is this, when it comes to holiness, is that the law cannot make you holy. But in grace, the Holy Spirit can make you holy as you open yourself to him. And so we are told here some examples of how that may look when the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. There's warnings and encouragement in, in verse 14 of chapter 12. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, uh, you don't have to follow the intricacies of the law. You don't have to keep up with all of the details of the Sabbath and all of these other things, but, but you must stay holy. It's important that you stay holy. It's important that, that, that you understand that holiness is part of what keeps you in the race. It's part of what qualifies you to finish the race. It's part of what allows you to live in the kingdom after this race. And so he gives three examples. They're not exhaustive, but they're ways to think about holiness and, and things to avoid, things to throw off, things to get rid of. It is severed relationships, sexual immorality, and selfish gratification. Those, those are three things mentioned in this passage that I just read. The first one is severed relationships. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defilement. You, you see how he, he, he intertwines this idea of holiness with our relationships with others. He says, you need to make every effort to, to reconcile yourself to others, people that you have hurt or people that have hurt you. You must be at peace because, because unresolved conflict is detrimental to your spiritual health. Unresolved conflict is harmful to your spiritual health and to that of others. It is extra weight in the race. And so the Bible tells us it's our responsibility to make every effort to be at peace with everyone. Jesus said, look, if someone has offended you, you go and seek them out. Put your offering at the altar. Put worship on hold. Put communion on hold and go make sure that you're right with your brother or sister. If you've been offended or if you've been the offender, go make things right. Make every effort to be at peace. Now, you're not responsible for what the other person does or responds. That's not your responsibility. That's between them and God. But you are responsible to make every effort to make sure that as far as you're concerned, there is not a root of bitterness that grows in your heart or in the heart of the other person. Because that will affect your race. 
And secondly, sexual immorality. You know that sex is a beautiful gift from God? God has given sex so that it can be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. God designed marriage to be the relationship between one man and one woman together forever until death separates them to become one flesh. And part of becoming one flesh is to enjoy this intimacy that God created called sex. But anything, any sexual activity outside of marriage is sexual immorality. It is a sin. And it must be treated as such. It must be recognized as such. It must be avoided as such because it will hurt your race. It will hurt your ability to get to the finish line well. And it hurts others. And then third and final, this selfish gratification. And it points to Esau. Remember the story of Esau? When he was starving, he traded his birthright and all of the blessings that came with that for a single meal is this picture of, of instant gratification. This idea, the foolishness of satisfying an immediate urge without thinking of the consequences. And that's our society today, isn't it? People, people want instant gratification. They want to feel good. They don't care about the moral implications. They don't care about what the scriptures say. They don't care about the long-term effects. They just want to be happy. They, they, they just want to do what feels right. And sometimes, mistakenly, they call it love. And we see signs all over the place that love wins or everyone deserves to be loved. Now, I, I believe that love wins. Everyone deserves to be loved. Regardless, I believe that. But sometimes what people mean by that is we want to do what feels right now regardless of the morality, regardless of the rightness of it, and we want to call it love. Let me tell you, that's not love. To allow someone to do something that hurts them is not love. It, the, the scripture says a father disciplines his children. When, when they step out of line, he corrects them. It may be painful. Love is not permissiveness. Love is doing what's best. And so the scripture reminds us here that, that, that this kind of self Selfish gratification is sinful and hurtful. Listen, a better kingdom requires better living. If we're going to rule and reign with Christ, we need to pursue the holiness of Christ. We need to throw off everything that keeps us. And these are examples. There may be other things in your life that you need to throw off. But the sanctification of the kingdom means that you pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. I'm not saying that you produce your own holiness. You don't do that in your own strength. It's the Holy Spirit that can make you holy. But you need to be intentional about it. You need to pursue it. You need to seek it. You need to desire it. And let me finish third and last, the success of the kingdom. Last summer, about this time, we had the opportunity, my wife and I, to go to Seattle and Washington, and I was able to officiate a wedding there. And and the place where the couple arranged for us to stay was, was facing the Pacific Bay. And at a distance, you could see the Olympic Mountains, a beautiful range of snow-capped mountains. And it was the middle of the summer. We opened the windows to our room, and, and we could uh, 
feel the ocean breeze and we slept with the windows open at night. It was beautiful. And then it, I, I, I was wondering why they were called the Olympic Mountains and I found out they're, they're named after Mount Olympia in Greece where the Greeks believed that the gods lived. And that's where the Olympic Games centuries before Christ was born were, were started in honor of Zeus. The symbolism of the mountains is incredible, only surpassed by their beauty. And, and as I thought about those mountains and as I think about this passage, I see that there are two different mountains that stand in the background of the old, of the old and new covenants. There's Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the mountain where Moses went to get the law. It is the mountain that had an earthquake and they had smoke and, and where people were told not to get close to the mountain because if they did, they would die. It is a mountain of the covenant, but a mountain of fear and trembling because God wanted his people to know how holy he is and how he requires holiness. And then there's Mount Zion. It is the mount of the new covenant. But it's not a mountain of fear. It's a, it's a mountain of blessing and confidence. It's the headquarters of this new, better kingdom that Christ has established. Look at what the writer says in verse 22 about that, of Hebrews 12. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Now that's a party. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus not only finished the race victoriously, but he opened up the way for us to go up to the mountain, to draw near to the mountain, to get to the mountaintop, where, where the kingdom is established, the headquarters of the kingdom, and to celebrate with the angels and the people that have come before us and the people that will come after us. He changed the mountain of fear into a mountain of victory, a mountain of rejoicing. And it is that reward that compels us to remain faithful. It is that vision that keeps us on track, that keeps us going, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem awaits us. We see it now from a distance. The success of the kingdom means that we rejoice in the reward. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us rejoice. Let us be thankful. Let us be in awe and reverence before God. Let us understand that the suffering of the kingdom means we, we ought to endure his discipline because he has a purpose. The sanctification for the kingdom means that we should pursue holiness so that we can enjoy the kingdom. That's the success of the kingdom. Rejoice in the reward. Let us run with perseverance. Let us run with endurance. Let us stay in the race. Every step matters. Every day matters. So run to the fullest, live to the fullest, because what awaits us is fuller than what we've ever known. How are you going to respond to that? What is, that? what is it that God is calling you to do today? Maybe you need to, for the first time,
Trust Jesus so you can enter the race. Maybe you're not even in the race. And we, we invite you to join this race that you can be victorious in because of Christ. As you trust in his death and his sacrifice. Maybe you're here and what you need to do is to say, I'm willing to, to accept whatever trials and suffering I'm going to go through to understand that God is working his purpose in my life. I will trust him in the valley, as we said earlier. Maybe today what you want to say, I just want to pursue holiness. I want to throw off everything that hinders. I'm going to get rid of some sinful habits in my life. And I'm going to pursue holiness. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to make me like Christ. Would you stand prayerfully as you think about your response to God's word today, your commitment. Father, thank you for Jesus and all that he did for us at the cross. Thank you for the better kingdom that awaits us. Thank you for the invitation that we have to run with endurance this race that you ran and you won. We want to cross that finish line. We want to do it well. We want to do it faithfully. So help us today as we respond in faith. Whatever our commitment needs to be, allow that to be nailed right here, right now. In Jesus' name we pray.